from KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Are we still allowed to say Happy New Year? I recently joked that Americans are in the annual three-week window of extreme dieting before the Super Bowl when the entire country slides into a vat of seven-layer dip. I understand the impulse to eat a simpler diet after the holidays, but I'm also keenly aware of how diet culture negatively impacts our mental health and relationship to food. So what if instead of focusing on losing weight, we zeroed in on our well-being? Mary Beth Albright is an award-winning journalist who studies the science behind the food-mood connection. I love talking to her about her book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. And considering the topsy-turvy world we live in, I thought it was a good time to check in with her again. Hi, Mary Beth. Hi, Evan. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for letting me speak with your audience. Oh, we're glad to have you back. Since we last spoke, you launched a podcast, which is called Eat, You'll Feel Better. And I thought we could start with a few topics you've discussed recently, starting with how flavor is created in the brain. And specifically, if you can explain that in the context of Air One's Haley Bieber smoothie, how much more delicious it is given that it's named after a celebrity, cost of fortune, is associated with LA and went viral on social media. Yeah, and is at a at a grocery store where paparazzi stands outside trying to get photos of the famous people who go in and, and buy stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, look, the human body is an ecosystem. Flavor is created in the brain because what we taste on our tongue is only one very small piece of what we wind up having um, the experience of food. The flavor that we get comes, yes, from the food that's on our tongue, and yes, from what we smell, but it also comes from everything that's around us. And there's, um, in psychology, there's this idea called a, a contagion effect, that if you buy something or eat something or possess something that is the same as someone who is a celebrity or royalty, that somehow you get the features of that celebrity or that royalty onto you in some very small way. You saw this with, for example, the television show Succession, that there would be like, you know, somebody would be wearing like a $900 baseball cap and the next day all of them would be sold out, right? Because it's these signs of stealth wealth. And so there have been a ton of studies showing that when people eat something and believe that either royalty eats it or famous people who, whom they admire eat it, that people are likely to rate that food as more flavorful and more delicious than if it's just a cookie that somebody's eating or just a smoothie. So at, at the grocery store chain Erwan in Southern California, there are 10 of this, these stores and they sell something called the Haley Bieber smoothie. And it is an $18 smoothie. That's a, that's a topic for a different conversation. Um, <laughs> but about how people are so into buying this and, and maybe getting a little piece of a beautiful model along with, you know, their, their morning almond milk smooth smoothie. We are such sheep in the face of consumption and being influenced. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and that goes with food too. I mean, people think that there is an absolute truth that happens with food. And a lot of this, I think, comes from reality television cooking, that there is a best 
right? That there is something that is the ultimate. This is the perfect recipe, that kind of thing. When really, it depends on what you like. So um, when we were heading into Thanksgiving, you had suggestions on eating during like the stressful week ahead. And you also Mm. made the distinction between being happy and grateful. So I'm wondering how we focus on our long-term well-being when choosing foods that go, you know, beyond eight almonds or carrot sticks instead of the chips. When you're sitting at a holiday table or when you're at a holiday party, it's often counterproductive for your emotional well-being to really focus on only eating the carrot sticks and only eating the eight almonds, right? I'm not saying that every single day. I'm saying it when you're at a festivity and you're at some sort of a celebration. And so the things that I talked about focusing on during the holidays, and these are science-backed recommendations for eating for long-term emotional well-being, is to focus on increasing your fiber, because fiber is really, it is the food for the microbes that are inside of our body that create all kinds of neurochemicals that influence our mood. So focusing on that fiber, um, focusing on vegetables, just adding in vegetables, because we so often think to ourselves, think about the Brussels sprout, right? Back in the 1980s, when I was eating Brussels sprouts as a kid, it was sort of like they were disgusting, they were boiled, nobody liked them. And all of a sudden, you put some olive oil on them and roast them, and everybody, they become this you know viral sensation over the past couple decades. So when you treat vegetables correctly, they are really delicious. And so I think it's important that we focus on adding those vegetables to our plates rather than what are you going to, you know, what are you going to keep off of your plate? And even if the vegetable has olive oil on it, it's okay. I understand we all have this fat phobia, but there are kinds of fats that are really actually fantastic for your mental health. And remember, your brain is made out of fat. So your brain needs fat to survive and to think and to, and to have emotions, which tell us how we feel about the world. My brain must be in such good shape. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> um, you quote Plato, the beginning is the most important part. So as we set a foundation for the new year, many people listening want to change the way they eat. How do we change the way we eat without making it feel like a diet? Mm, this is to me, this is the most important question. I have grown up around diet culture. Everybody, everybody who can hear this has just the idea of being thinner is better. Eating less food is always better. And that's associated with some sort of moral superiority. Um, that there are certain body types and body sizes that are morally superior to others. All of this stuff is really harmful for emotional well-being. And to me, starting from a place of diet culture, of that kind of deprivation, of that kind of, I've got to be as thin as possible, or for men, of course, I include men, I've got to be as lean as possible, muscular, that kind of thing. These bodies, body ideals that we have, if you are focused on better mental health, 
You're fighting an uphill battle if you are starting with a diet culture mentality. The number one thing that I, I, and I focus on it all the time, this is my life's work and I have to focus and remind myself when I'm, when I'm falling into diet culture of like, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to eat that even though I'm hungry. You know, I'm hungry, but, but I, I don't know, maybe I can wait for longer, that kind of thing. Hunger is a signal that your body is sending to you and, and you need to get to know it better. And there are all kinds of ways that ultra processed foods and a lot of the foods in our food system will trick our brains into thinking that we haven't haven't had enough when we really have. So focusing on those whole foods, focusing on fiber, focusing on vegetables, fruits, whole foods, it's an old um, recommendation, but with a brand new science behind it um, about why it really helps with your mental health and emotional well-being. Thank you so much, Mary Beth. Um, Let's hope we walk into the new year in a more sane fashion when it comes to food. Oh, Evan, that is my hope every single day. And there's all kinds of really good signs that we are doing that. That was Mary Beth Albright, an award-winning journalist making the science-based connection between food and mental health. Her book is Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being, and her new podcast is Eat, You'll Feel Better. Coming up, when self-checkout kiosks are asking if you want to leave a tip, you've got to wonder, has gratuity reached a tipping point? We try to answer that question next. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. Welcome back to Good Food. More than a decade ago, Jonathan Gold shared his golden rules, or shall I say golden rule, of tipping. 20% every time at the restaurant, the coffee shop, the valet, the bar. But I do wonder if we need a new golden rule, considering what happened to one of my producers while traveling over the holiday season. While buying a bottle of water and a bag of pretzels at the airport, a self-checkout kiosk inquired, do you want to leave a tip? Huh? In a piece for The New Yorker, staff writer Zach Helfand wonders if gratuities have reached a tipping point. Are we always to tip the cashier when they swivel the iPad in our direction? Don't and you're a cheapskate, Zach writes. Do and you're a sucker. Zach joins me now to explain when and why the practice of leaving gratuities began. I have a hunch that for as long as there's been money, there's probably been little extra paid out for services provided. But as far as we can tell, the earliest known instance of of what people who study this consider tipping is in the 16th century uh, on on the states of aristocrats in Europe when uh, visitors would come and when you were waited on by the footmen and whoever else were there, uh, you would pay them what's called a veil, uh, which was basically a tip for services provided. And the nice thing was, if you owned the estate, if, if you were the, the, the lord, uh, you would have to pay your, your servants uh, a little bit less because your friends who would come over and visit would have to subsidize it a little bit. And so from Europe 
it eventually caught on into America. Visitors would would from America would go to Europe, bring back the the practice, um, and it spread uh, in a large part due to the Pullman Company, the train company. Um, George Pullman hired mostly formerly enslaved black men as porters, and he didn't want to pay them a lot, so he used the idea of tipping to get the public to subsidize the wages and the trains went everywhere and so did the practice and it became pretty entrenched here. And the word tip itself, what does it mean? So th- this is the the etymology is disputed. The often told tale is that it's an acronym for to ensure promptitude. So the story is that at old taverns in England at coffee houses there was an urn that was set out. Um, and people would drop a coin in there to get more prompt service. Uh, etymologically, people who study this are, are skeptical. They think there's not a lot of evidence for it, but that's, that's the, the tale that's often told. Tell us about the Hat Check King of New York City. So the Hat Check King I was such a delight to discover. It turns out Lillian Ross one of the great writers for the, for the New Yorker, had actually profiled him many decades ago. And the, the hat check trusts were these concessionaires in New York who would pay nice restaurants for the privilege of checking hats and coats at the front of the business. So men and women would come in, they would need to check their coats, men would always wear hats no matter the season, and they would have to pay a nickel or a dime to tip the usually young women who would check their coats. And the tip trusts who ran the, the hat check business and the coat check businesses would just kind of pocket all of the tips themselves. So the, the women who were checking the coats didn't actually get the tips in the way that most patrons would have expected. And the most successful of them was a man who appropriately enough got the moniker of the hat check king. And it, at his height, he was bringing in about, I think, 50 or $60 million a year just on tips. It was just from the nickels and dimes and quarters that people would pay because they were pretty much obligated to check their hats every time they would go to a restaurant. And the funny thing about this was I had a conversation for this piece with Danny Meyer, uh, the restaurateur who has the Gramercy Tavern, Union Square Cafe. He founded Shake Shack uh, and hates tips and tried to get rid of tips at his, his own restaurant and ran an experiment where they had no tipping for a number of years and eventually gave that up during the pandemic, but still to this day does not like the practice, doesn't think it makes any sense. And as we were chatting about this, we were talking about the Hat Check King, and he said, actually, my first restaurant in New York, Union Square Cafe, the building it was in, the landlord, the guy who owned the building, was the son of the Hat Check King. His whole empire his whole real estate empire had been built upon these little tiny nickel and dime tips. And that's where Danny Meyer opened his first restaurant. So even the guy who hates it and tries to get rid of it was like, I can't, I can't escape tips everywhere I go. You know, even my, even my business was built upon the foundation of tips. You point out that once tipping takes hold, it can be hard to get rid of. As we see here in America, we've seen this play out over the last 10 years when, as you mentioned, High-profile restaurateurs like Danny Myers have tried to eliminate it. Why do you think Europe managed to move on from the practice? And here we just dig in our heels. I think it's partly cultural, but I think a lot of it has to do with minimum wage laws. So federally, and this varies from state to state, but federally, the tipped minimum wage is just $2.13 an hour 
So the idea is you make up the difference between the tipped minimum wage, that $2 figure, and the actual minimum wage through tips. But that's still a strikingly low number. And it assumes that the customers are just going to subsidize those labor costs for the business. Now, there are some states, like California is one of them, that doesn't have a tipped minimum wage, that waiters and all service workers have to get paid the full minimum wage. And if they get tips, they get that on top of the full minimum wage. But I think the problem is that people don't know. It takes a labor lawyer or an economist uh, to kind of sort out who gets paid what. And if you're a customer just going to a coffee shop, you probably have no idea what the people are getting paid. And you just assume this is a a situation, a restaurant, a business in which this person gets tipped, so I have to tip. Uh, Because you feel like if you don't tip these people, then they're not going to be making a living wage. There are some states that have tried to do away with the tipped minimum wage that's lower than the regular minimum wage. But I think unless there's a sweeping nationwide movement to just eliminate tips and eliminate the confusion over who should get tips and who doesn't, it's just never going to go anywhere. And I don't think that movement is going to happen anytime soon or maybe ever. So let's talk about who gets the tips and what constitutes service. You mentioned legal issues, and and I know that restaurants are terrified of getting sued. And you mentioned that there have been a lot of cases, for example, with sushi chefs. I love the sushi chef example because in most states, I know in New York it's this way, for a transaction to be considered a service transaction, you kind of have to enter in some sort of relationship with the worker. So you have to be able to look them in the eye. You have to be able to see them is really a big part of it. If a chef is cooking me dinner, to me, that seems like a very intimate act. You know, this person is touching and prodding the food that I'm going to be putting in my mouth and trusting is is healthy and cooked right. But that, because the chef works behind the kitchen, that is not considered service in the eyes of New York law, at least. And and, and most jurisprudence is not considered service. The waiter who I'm looking in the eye, that's obviously considered service. Now, the sushi chef is really interesting. And there's been lawsuits that have hinged over to what extent the sushi chef is interacting with the customer. If the sushi chef is taking the customer's order, they're a service worker. If the sushi chef is just you know glumly looking down and making the sushi and not talking and interacting, then maybe they're not a service worker. The guy who's right next to the sushi chef who's just making rice and not interacting with the customer at all, he could be not a service worker, and the sushi chef who is interacting with customers could be a service worker. So it's really kind of a silly distinction to me, but a lot of it has to do with why we tip psychologically. And a lot of it has to do with guilt and shame and the fact that when you are being served, you feel like you are in a superior position to someone. And I think that makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to feel like we're better than someone or you know, be made to stare that in the face. Um, and so we tip. And when work is invisible, when it's behind a wall or in a kitchen or in another room, we don't have that guilt anymore. And so we don't feel the social need to tip. And that's kind of been written into law. Yeah, it's really interesting, this idea of how guilt and even masochism kind of <laughs> are at, at play in this exchange between worker and customer. I would imagine there's a fair amount of power um, in certain situations, too, where ego is at play. And I've always felt that this is maybe the ultimate reason why... Um, Tipping won't go away in America, so the customers have the last say in a way. Are there certain people who are always good tippers and others who are chronically bad at it? Uh, there, there's folk wisdom passed down 
about who isn't isn't a good tipper. I, I think it's tough to say that any one specific group is good or bad definitively. Although if you talk to waiters, there's a very, very good chance that uh, they'll tell you that uh, Europeans don't tip as well. Uh, French people don't tip as well when they come to America. It's because they don't, they're not used to it. Um, they don't know the rules necessarily. Um, but besides that, the, the, the folk wisdom, which, which may or may not be true, is that people like teachers, lawyers, Lexus owners... Uh, are bad tippers, and then uh, mobsters, uh, CEOs, pickup truck drivers, they're good tippers. There are certain reasons for all of those, uh, but that's that's part of the folk wisdom that's passed down among waiters. So funny. Oh, yeah, waiters will talk about this endlessly. Oh, yeah. Um, and so now we get to the crux of, of the story, which is technology, the iPad pirouette, as you call it. Um, <laughs> were you able to quantify how much more or how much less we are tipping because of digital transactions? It's It's hard to put an exact number on how much more we're tipping. And what I found and what the research into this has found was there was a, a slight increase at the beginning of the pandemic in the amount that we tip. That was called the, the guilt tipping boom is what it was called. That's mostly leveled out now. The difference is the amounts of places where we tip. People are tipping uh, a group of workers known as uh, assistant coaches. So, uh, you know, it might be on your youth, you know, your kid's youth team. Uh, we're tipping box office attendants at theaters and, and at uh, movie theaters. The butcher shop is, is a good example. The butcher I talked to, they instituted the, the screens, the, the swiveling iPad, when, when the inflation boom started. And uh, he found that he was an employee at the butcher shop that his pay was not quite keeping up with inflation. But then when they factored in the tips, it, it really kept him afloat. So sometimes it does work itself out in these nice ways. And I think at its best, the practice kind of makes you think about what do we owe each other? And what, what is this person providing for me? And, and what do I owe them in return for that? And I think that's a nice thing to be able to think about. And when the system is new, you really do think about those questions a lot. The problem is it kind of solidifies into certain rules and then it's an obligation. And businesses often take advantage of it because they could lower their labor costs and just pass it along to you, knowing that you're going to tip 20% every time. One of my favorite anecdotes in your story is when uh, a girl goes to the impound lot to get her car and at checkout is asked if she wants to leave a tip. <laughs> so this was this was the the daughter of the butcher I talked to actually, and she herself worked at Starbucks and found uh, you know talking about the irrationality of, of of who gets tipped what she found that on days when she wore makeup she would get higher tips at Starbucks. Uh, so she she went to the ice rink or the the skating rink roller rink and and got her car towed and it was something like nine hundred dollars. And there was a service fee on top of that, like a convenience fee, it was called, which is basically a mandatory tip by another name. It's like a cousin of a tip. And they go and they try to pick up the car and it's $900. And it's like, do you want to, do you want to tip, you know, five, eight, 10% on top of that? Uh, and they were like, absolutely not. Why would, why would I want to tip you for this service that I didn't even ask for? Um, but it just, it's, it's one of those things where when you use the checkout system, the iPad, a lot of times the default is to tip. And so we're seeing these tips pop up in, in places like the self-checkout kiosk or the impound lot where it makes no sense to tip, but it's just the default and, and, and that's, that's how these things spread now. One thing that really 
struck me when this iPad swivel started happening was how it took this intentional decision from a private space to a public space because people behind you in a lot of these interactions can see what you're doing. My editor calls it like a spotlight. Like you feel like the iPad is glowing and it's pretty bright and everyone can see it and it's big. It makes this already very fraught psychological transaction way more fraught. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I mean, the other night I was at a restaurant. It was cold. It was late at night. And I went to get pick up my car from the valet. I didn't have any cash. And I always give cash to the guy who delivers my car. And uh, because I know the money, the fee is going to the company. So it, the transaction was done on an, I, on an iPad um, credit card app. And, you know, I tip my usual 20%, maybe even a little more. And then I'm waiting for my car. And I noticed that the um, woman who came after me tipped zero. And it was just, it just stuck with me for so long (laughs) as I climbed into my car and just, you know, wound my way through the streets of Los Angeles on a cold, dark night. And I was like, wow, zero. Interesting. (laughs) It, It seems like a judgment. You know, it like it. It seems like you you get nothing. I was in Buenos Aires uh, over Christmas, and I don't I didn't know what the tipping rules were, and so we went out to dinner, and there's no line on the bill to tip with your credit card, and so few people carry around cash anymore. We learned after the meal was over, and after we left the restaurant, that uh, in Argentina usually you you are expected to tip a bit, but it's supposed to be in cash. Uh, so we felt horrible, and I had to go back the next day. And, uh, and, you know, with some cash to give to the server from, from the last night because we felt so bad that she would go home, A, without money, and B, thinking that she did a bad job, that, you know, we, we gave her nothing because she deserved nothing. Uh, so we, we were so guilt-ridden by that that we had to go back the next day. Thank you so much, Zach. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. That was New Yorker staffer Zach Helfand. We've been talking about his recent story for the magazine, Has Gratuity Culture Reached a Tipping Point? In a minute, when a college professor went on sabbatical for a year, he waited tables to supplement his income. Turns out, waiting tables is a lot more lucrative than academia. We share two stories about the power of hospitality next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. There are many people who rely on hospitality service jobs to live. Some are careerists, finding a place in a particular restaurant or catering service that suits their life. Many more become waiters or bartenders while working towards some other career or aspiration. Waiting tables, in essence, becomes a way station, something to do to earn money and be out in the world while working towards a dream. Matthew Bott was already an English professor when he found himself turning to waiting tables during his sabbatical. It went quite differently than he imagined. Hi, Matthew. Hello. Had you waited tables during high school or college when you were studying for your degree? Yeah, I've basically waited tables parallel to my academic career um, my whole life since college. I think I've worked in like 11 restaurants total. That's really amazing. Were there any types of restaurants that you preferred to work in or that really drew you in? 
I suppose I probably shouldn't say this if the IRS is listening, but the ones that paid cash under the table were really great. <laughs> Does anybody do that anymore? Wow. <laughs> I, I doubt it. I doubt it. And we should establish where this whole life for you is happening. Where do you live? Uh, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. So you you waited tables in tandem as you you know, study towards your academic goal. You are actually now a professor of creative writing at one of those Minnesota universities. And yet you made this decision to start waiting tables again um, during the year of your sabbatical. Why on earth would you do that? <laughs> well, what, what came as a pretty big surprise to me was that when you take a sabbatical at a school like mine, uh, it comes with a 50% pay cut. So before too long, I was just broke um, and we needed to pay for my son's daycare. We needed to pay for, you know, our mortgage and everything. And there were terms of my sabbatical that I couldn't take a teaching job anywhere else. And I looked around and I was literally at a restaurant uh, spending my last $5 bill on a burger and a cheap beer when I thought, well, I can do this again, waiting tables at, you know, my mid-40s. Weren't you worried about an awkward encounter happening with a student? Oh, absolutely. Um, I lived in absolute peril the entire time I worked in restaurants of needing to wait on one of my students. But I managed to work around that by just happening to land a job at what ended up being a really high-end restaurant, um, the kind of place uh, your typical Midwestern undergrad doesn't tend to frequent. <laughs> It's interesting what's happened to the dynamic between diners and servers since um, the pandemic. I feel like we've gone from a, a sort of a moment of empathy and insight to what working the job was really like to now maybe more of a skeptical kind of um, look at the service industry that might have a lot to do with how diners feel these days about tipping. Um, could, you, could you read something for us? I'd be happy to. At most establishments, whether at a high, low, or in-between restaurant, diner, falafel hut, tiki bar, pedal pub, sports bar, or popsicle stand, most servers are working their asses off, whether you can tell or not. Like those with mandatory military service, countries that required mandatory restaurant work for at least a year would make everyone more compassionate, understanding, and gracious. Because, not unlike serving your country in a time of war, it is not possible to have been a server or a cook and not known trauma. Do you say that because the work itself is traumatizing, or there is something in the personalities of those who populate restaurants that draw people together who have experienced trauma? Boy, I think it's both. Um, I think there's something inherently difficult about working in a place where ostensibly you're not just feeding people, but you're making them happy. Um, and in order to do so, one needs to not be seen working hard to make people happy. Like people don't want, you know, to be made happy by like slave labor or, or toil or um, even though uh, that's almost what all restaurant work uh, entails. And I think too that there's something about um, 
a lot of folks who find their way into working restaurants have done so out of necessity to take the kind of job that's physically, emotionally, uh, mentally taxing and demanding. And so many people who work in restaurants, whichever one they work at, it's not their only job either. The demands of their life, of their um, migration, of their family, of their legal status, whatever. Lots of people in restaurants, I I find, have known trauma, are going through trauma, um, and otherwise um, are just working in an almost entirely unforgiving industry. You have this wonderful quote where you say, Everybody who has ever worked in the service industry has had apocalyptically bad days, and they follow not just our waking selves, but also forever into the lives of our dreams. I'm sure that every occupation has elements that seep into dreams, but my experience is that restaurant dreams seem to last forever while you're sleeping and (laughs) recur, (laughs) much like terrifying high school dreams about testing. Um, what have been some of your dreams that have lingered? Oh, man, like all of them. I, I feel like I've never had, like, despite, you know, being a pretty geeky high school kid, I never had a bad high school dream, never had one of those you wake up, you know, in an auditorium with no pants on kind of dream, never had a bad teaching dream, but I have restaurant dreams all the time. They usually involve me being like vastly underprepared for whatever shift is at hand. Um, it's usually a lunch shift because those always seem to me to be the worst. And invariably it involves some disaster with the micros system where I don't know you know, <laughs> how to order a Sprite or say sauce on the side or split checks. It never ends. The dreams never end. <laughs> the micros system being the point of sale system that many, many restaurants use. Mm-hmm. Um, are you still waiting tables? I'm not. Um, I ended up staying at the brewer's table. I worked there from um, the conception of the restaurant to its soft open all the way through to um, its ultimate end two and a half years later, even after I was um, off of sabbatical. And, and did it solve the financial problems that you were hoping it would? I made more money waiting tables than I did as an associate professor. I mean, granted, it was Minnesota at the time where if you're waiting tables, you're also making minimum wage, and then you got tipped on top of that. At the time, it was uh, it was the kind of restaurant that had a tip pool, um, which was awesome because everybody worked however many hours they worked, and your tips went into a kitty, and they were just divided up hourly. So it was fantastic. Um, we were able to um, do the kinds of things that you would think uh, like an academic professor would be able to do, but we were only able to do because I happen to have a job working at a nice restaurant. So what would you say to diners about the life of a server and what they're trying to achieve for the people who come and eat at a given establishment? Um, I forget who said it, but somebody described working in a restaurant as participating in the theater of life. And to me, that servers, chefs, cooks, dishwashers, really everybody who works in restaurants are just a part of like this beautifully complicated system where things can go perfectly or they can go like apocalyptically wrong. And I just think it's the kind of place where They deserve our gratitude. Everybody who works in restaurants deserves our gratitude. 
Well said. Thank you so much, Matthew. My pleasure. That was professor and sometimes server Matthew Bott. His book is The Last Supper Club, A Waiter's Requiem. As we've learned over the past three years, there is a lot more to running a restaurant than serving food. An owner once told me that restaurateuring is 51% vibe. What she meant was, sure, it's important to have great food, but hospitality is paramount. Good service is hard to define. It falls into the I know it when I see it category. But in his new book, The Lula Cafe Cookbook, Chef Jason Hamill puts words to what makes service good and why hospitality matters. Jason is the chef and owner of Lula Cafe in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood. He's known for his progressive policies as well as his excellent farm-to-table food. He's also known as a mentor in the industry, and I'm so happy that he's finally written his story. Hi, Jason. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, welcome to Good Food. So just to give us a historical context, when did you and your now wife, Leah, then colleague and friend, open Lula? Uh, September 2nd, 1999. And had you had lots of experience as a chef before you jumped in and did that? No, zero experience as a capital C chef. I had worked in restaurants in the past. I went to graduate school in Illinois to study writing. And uh, at that time, I sort of ran out of money and turned to the guy next to me. I was sitting at a bar and was like, look, I, I need to get some money. What do you do? And he's like, well, I'm a cook. You can come join me tonight on the line. And that was literally the first uh, time I had worked in a kitchen of a restaurant. And uh, it was sort of a off-brand California pizza kitchen off the highway. So it was, it was no fine dining. But it wasn't until I actually opened a restaurant and found myself at the helm and, you know, as a leader before I could ever like say that I was a chef. So I sort of owned a restaurant before I was a chef and and it was an accidental uh, career, but it's one that sort of took over my life immediately when we opened the restaurant. I was struck by how you described the situation and how Lula began as we came together to do something creative and fun without pressure or consequences. It's so different to what young people face now opening a restaurant. Um, You say that your ethos was to embrace change and assume the best of all. It's an outlook within an extraordinary lack of cynicism. Thank you. (laughs) I I still really believe in the power of hospitality and I found that belief fortified post-pandemic in a way because it was so challenged by the pandemic. I think under duress, it made me double down. I've often said, you know, a restaurant like Lula could not happen today because, you know, we started with no money, no concept, and no one was watching. You know, we didn't get a starred review in the, you know, the paper of record here in Chicago until we were 17 years old. So we, we definitely flew under the radar, so to speak. At the same time, I feel like the food scene in many you know, major and minor American cities right now has the ability to produce some of these kinds of experiences in 
the form of, you know, pop-ups and other sort of more like transient and ephemeral dining experiences. So I do see the same kind of like energy happening again. So I, I think that a restaurant like Lula is possible. But for the most part these days, now that food is this sort of like cultural sport that it is, I mean, you can't not expect reviewers and, you know, diners with, frankly, like a, a highly critical, you know, like uh, sensibility um, to descend upon you right away and make judgment of you immediately. And that doesn't allow for sustained organic growth, which is, I think is just really too bad. So let's talk hospitality. Um, you say that a diner has to trust the service to believe in the food. Mm-hmm. Do you have a book nearby? Can you read a paragraph that begins with, let's say someone orders a bowl of soup? <laughs> yes, of course. Let's say someone orders a bowl of soup. Normally, it's a four-minute pick. Toast the bread, heat the soup, mount with butter, garnish, etc. If there are a lot of orders on the board, the cook might take eight, ten minutes, a long time indeed just for soup. But now, let's say that the server sets down a soup spoon right at minute number five, just to the right of the customer, and it is the correct size spoon, clean and polished with a nice deep bowl, clearly for no other purpose than to eat soup with. It is placed with confidence and poise and with a nice firm yet subtle anticipatory tap on the table. The customer thinks, oh yeah, this place has got its together. My soup is being made and everything is fine in the world. The wait goes by pleasantly, and when the soup arrives, it is hot, beautiful, and deeply satisfying. Best soup ever. But let's feel 10 minutes without the spoon, or even seeing your server, until after the soup is set down and left to get cold and the customer needs to raise her hand and ask for the spoon. That is when the soup starts to taste weird and maybe over-seasoned, and not at all as good as the customer remembers from the last time, actually not at all as good as the canned soup she has in her pantry back home. It's so true, and yet that touch, that thing to do, can be incredibly difficult. It can be. I I compare it to grammar in a sentence, which is also quite difficult to learn and to master, so to speak. I think that the sense of confidence that you build from the service elements, meaning like the technical delivery of a product, is what creates the potential for feeling. Without service, without, the, the, without getting the things that one needs in the right manner, then you certainly are not going to feel good. Feeling doesn't just sort of wash over any kind of lack of service. But what I definitely talk about in that section a lot is the idea that these two things, service and hospitality, may be considered separate from each other. Service being that technical delivery of what you want, and hospitality, how you feel when you get the thing that you want. But that they're intertwined in such a way that you cannot separate them, and you cannot just focus on one or the other. And that hospitality ultimately is a sort of like reciprocal relationship. It's a relationship between two different humans. And that's where, that's where the beauty of restaurants is. It's like in how you feel when you're there. But you can't feel those things without service. And that, that certainly comes first. And that's kind of what my writing teacher was telling me about my bad grammar back in the days of being a writing student. I love how you date the recipes in the book. Every recipe has a date at the top. It does. 
Because restaurants are rarely static. So much changes over time. So I'd love to talk a bit about the food. Tell us the dish you married into, the pasta yaya. Sure. Um, this is a dish that comes from my wife's family. My wife is Greek. I'm from an Italian family, so this was new to me. When you hear pasta, you know, obviously, you, you know, most people think Italian, but in, <laughs> you're married into a Greek family and you'll find, find out otherwise. Uh, this is a pasta that is very common to Greek households because it's sort of an easy take on pastizzo, which is that sort of lasagna-y, delicious comfort food that you find at restaurants that is very time-consuming to prepare. Um, but we interpreted it in a certain way. And what I love about this dish, it's, it's bucatini with brown butter, cinnamon, feta, and garlic. It's deceptively simple. These, there's you know, just those four ingredients. And uh, it does take some technique and timing. The whole timing of the, of the dish is something that I, I teach you know, rigorously with my cooks here at Lula. But it also just reminds me of the touch that goes into great food. And the fact that this, my, you know, my wife's grandmother made this regularly and had just sort of an elegant and beautiful touch. And I talk a lot about that with my cooks. Like it's all about just thinking about how you're interacting with the ingredients, specifically the butter sauce and how you, um, you watch it and learn what it does and what it's saying to you and then how to stop it right before it gets too dark. And that's the, the trick of the pasta yaya. So I, I imagine that's one of the first dishes you had on your menu and is still on the menu. True. And now one from reopening after the pandemic after with perhaps pandemic. a little, yeah, we're with a little bit of a different perspective. There's a paparadel dish that is a take on a ragu um, in which we use mushrooms and walnut to make this sort of like textures and I don't know, the mouthfeel of a meaty ragu, but in a vegetarian format. It's a little bit of a hard recipe, but I take you through the steps of just sort of breaking, when something seems hard, like breaking it down into its component parts and just showing you how to create texture and in a series of sort of like steps. Because, you know, the, one of the things that I talk about a lot with my cooks is that you never want to just throw things in a pot. That's not what cooking is about. It's about creating layers of flavor. That recipe really shows off that idea. It sounds so delicious. Um, and finally, I can't let you go without asking this question. Who was your creative writing thesis advisor? <laughs> it was David Foster Wallace. <laughs> just so amazing. You have to, it's pretty crazy, right? But yes, that's why I moved to Illinois study with David. Um, and I was in the nineties. And so, you know, I was there when he became famous very, I mean, he was already famous, but not that infinite Jess obviously was something that created a incredible amount of attention toward him. That was the time that I was there in normal Illinois. And what did he ask you when you told him you were opening a restaurant? Um, he said to me, um, which is the last thing he said to me, but how will you write? which is really the only encouragement he ever gave me in <laughs> two years that I was there. Well, I have to tell you, I still enjoyed the writing in this book. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Jason Hamill, chef owner of Lula Cafe in Chicago. His new cookbook is the Lula Cafe Cookbook, 
We've got a recipe for his yaya pasta on our website. Head to kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, some food news you can use. We discuss the new California laws that impact how we eat. After this quick break. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. This state of California passed some big food-related laws in 2023, and most of them will take effect this year. Just before the holidays, I sat down with Eater LA reporter and friend of Good Food, Mona Holmes, to find out how these new regulations might impact your future dining experiences. Hi, Mona. Hi, Evan. It's good to be here. I'm so happy you're here. I mean, a lot has gone on legislatively. In July, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that eases restrictions on home food businesses. It's now called the Microenterprise Home Kitchen Operations Program. Tell us about that. Assembly Bill 1325, this is an old version of a bill that's now been updated. It was already in place when Newsom signed it, but it increases how much these businesses prepare food and how much they can sell food from home. The significance is the expansion of the bill. Home cook operators were able to earn up to $50,000 annually, and now they can earn $100,000. They had a minimum of meal preparations of 60. They can now do 90. This can be huge for those that are just trying to earn extra money or, you know, maybe even follow a dream because opening up a restaurant, as you know, Evan, is (laughs) full of red tape and is a long process and can be really expensive, you know, with permits, construction, waiting for inspections, you know the drill. Yeah. So so this is a relief. It is a relief. It really allows people to take a little leap and see how much they want to risk. And I think also those of us who are eaters, um, the way we consume food and and who we buy food from has changed since the pandemic. And so I think this is a way that we know we won't lose people that we have come to rely on. Agreed. So the California legislature also passed the country's most ambitious fast food worker protection law. What does that do and when does it go into effect? Well, it took a lot of twists and turns this year, I can tell you that much. Uh, This bill should have become law in January. It was stopped in its tracks after a judge put a temporary hold on the law's implementation on January 1. And that law would have increased fast food workers' hourly wages from $15.15 to $20 an hour. But that would only apply to fast food chains that had more than 60 national locations. It would also establish this fast food council, which I think is an excellent idea. This fast food council, it would bring together employers, state agencies, employees to talk about worker safety rights. It's all great. Thankfully, union groups and businesses were able to negotiate a deal. So, and this is I would say that Newsom considers this a signature accomplishment. He flew down to Los Angeles, surrounded himself with a a ton of fast food workers, and essentially declared this a victory. And and it's a huge law because there's nothing in the U.S. like this that exists. So this has the chance to change a lot of things. But we'll see a lot of differences with fast food workers and food businesses, or any business for that matter, because of this law. And, And also, too... I 
anticipate that there will be more opposition to this law. And so let's let's see how this all goes. But it should be in, in effect in the middle of 2024. And the state legislature also passed a couple of bills that affect all workers, not just people working in hospitality. One of them, Senate Bill 616, has to do with sick leave. What's the scoop mm-hmm. on that? Lena Gonzalez, who is from Long Beach, she wound up passing Senate Bill 616. This increases sick days, paid sick days, from three to five. And and once again, as you know, we both worked in hospitality. There were so many people who came in sick when they shouldn't have. And that's that's pretty much been the standard. I think it improved significantly after COVID. But the lack of paid sick leave was part of the um, incentive or lack of incentive to come in rather than calling out. And even though there, you know, federal law doesn't require employers to pay for sick leave, but this bill would require California employers to do so. Yeah, and it's not specific to the food industry, but the food industry welcomes it. It's meant to take effect in on January 1st, 2024. Indeed. I also know that people don't want ill people preparing their food or serving their food. So, so this could be a very good thing. A very good thing. Another law that impacts all workers, Senate Bill 497, focuses on worker retaliation. What does that hope to accomplish? I just wrote a story about a meat supplier based out of La Puente, which according to the Department of Labor, employed children as young as 14, had them using sharp knives. And this company also retaliated against employees who cooperated with federal investigators. Now, Senate bill is not in effect yet, but this would actually put a stop to that. And not just in the food space, but any industry. And it makes it much easier for employees to claim that they've been punished by their employer. And had that law been in effect, it could have impacted this business that is also just went out of business because of this investigation and protected employees from speaking up when they see something wrong happening within the workplace. And finally, this is a big issue that many L.A. diners have been complaining about, the surcharges on restaurant bills. Senate Bill 478 outlaws hidden charges on purchases, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. junk fees, although it applies to all businesses, not just restaurants. What will it mean for restaurants and food businesses? So our team at Eater SF really helped lock down the story. I've been talking about this with everyone. This law is a great example of no good deed goes unpunished. (laughs) So it essentially banned junk fees throughout the state. And I'm sure it was meant to ban those fees that we all hate, like Ticketmaster or resort fees at hotels. And it's supposed to go into effect next year. But Restaurants have their own fees with service charges, surcharges at the bottom of your check. You know those that you're seeing a lot more of lately. So those same colleagues of mine, they spoke with California's Attorney General Rob Bonta for clarification, and they were caught by surprise when our reporters reached out. So those fees, you know, many of these restaurants, they use them towards healthcare or back of the house, you know, to help even out wages. But now the same group that authored the law and working with the attorney general are going to meet with industry groups to talk about its implementation. So it's not quite there yet. You know, this this is one of those laws that I believe in, but could have been written in a manner that would have 
made it more specific and not hurt restaurants that are already struggling. But probably the most infuriating thing about SBS478 is that they made an exception for third-party delivery apps. Oh like my Uber goodness. Eats and DoorDash. I girl. Oh my <laughs> it was goodness. Super frustrating. That is they very do. frustrating. I mean, most people don't know that up to 30% of what they're paying is going to the deliverer, not the person yeah. who's making your food. Yeah. Oh, what a <laughs> that's that's a missed opportunity. It is. It truly is. So is there any other food-related laws or bills pending that we should know about? Well, sure. I, you know, I obsess over these things. So this one isn't uh, necessarily restaurant-related, but I am fascinated by Assembly Bill 418. And this one has everything to do with prohibiting businesses from manufacturing, selling, delivering, distributing food products that all have chemicals in them, certain chemicals. And one of them is red dye number three. And so that would make it impossible to get certain candies, cake mixes, jello, gummy candies, drinks, breakfast cereals. I'm very curious to see how they're going to implement this because this could mean very different things for, uh, for manufacturers of these products and how they're going to sell things to the country's biggest state with 40 million people in it. Well, you know, the EU has managed to do it. They have. Thank you so much, Mona. I really appreciate you coming here to talk about this. Anytime, Evan. It's my pleasure. That was Eater LA reporter Mona Holmes discussing California's new food-related laws. For more details on these new regulations, visit our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondorajan and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. I hope the new year is treating you well. Stay healthy, stay warm, and I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Good Food.